Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Fit Body Happy Joints. My name is Shannon. Today, I am excited to share with you a lovely conversation I had with Dr. Meredith Broderick. And we talk about sleep. We talk about what normal sleep cycles are. We get into what symptoms you could be experiencing if you're not getting quality sleep, the relationship between weight and sleep. And we kind of get into some interesting stuff about sleep apnea and um, kind of like jaw and face development, things like that. Our conversation was really interesting, really informative. So I'm very excited to share this conversation with you today. So Dr. Meredith Broderick is a neurologist. She's extremely smart, extremely bright, extremely lovely. She has an extensive background in allopathic sleep medicine. She uses the latest evidence-based research with behavioral sleep medicine to create customized sleep plans to minimize the use of medications, which I love. She says that I love this. She says, I'm drawn to recreate the sacred space between a doctor and a patient where trust, patience, and connection are the keys to healing. I think that's so beautiful. She's kind of has her own practice. She practices in Washington, but she also can see patients in California and Alaska. So if you are in any of those three states, I highly recommend looking into Meredith if you're having some problems with sleep. Hopefully you're inspired by today's episode. Hopefully you learned something. I'm really excited to share it. Here is Dr. Meredith. Well, I'm really excited to talk about sleep because this is a fitness podcast and I'm always talking about how your workouts are only as effective as your ability to recover from them. And if you're not sleeping, you might be putting in all this hard work into your fitness routine, but not reaping the rewards because you're not able to recover properly because of sleep. So this is a long time coming. So I'm really excited to dive in today. And I want to start by talking about kind of what a normal sleep cycle is. And I'll be honest, I don't know a ton about like sleep. I know how important it is. I know like the, the bare bones, but I want you to really get into like kind of what's happening from a neurological level. Our audience is really nerdy and loves to know like the nerdy deep stuff. So can you talk about sleep cycles and what's happening at each stage? Sure. Well, I like to just start by saying that our sleep changes throughout our lifetime. So it really depends a little bit on your age of how we might define a normal sleep cycle. But let's just say we're talking about an adult and um, talk about that sleep cycle. We generally have four sleep stages and that changed a few years back. There used to be five and we've condensed some of the, one of two of the stages into one, but we essentially go from wakefulness into stage one, two, and three. And so those are non-REM stages and then into a REM stage. Um, and then we have a brief awakening and then we cycle through that sleep cycle, you know, it depends like maybe four to six times, let's say throughout the night. And each of those sleep cycles lasts about 90 minutes. It can vary a little bit. It can be longer, but um, let's just say, you know, on average 90 minutes. So you start at the beginning of the night, you complete, you know, your stage one, two, three REM. And then as the night progresses, the non-REM stages become shorter and the REM stages become longer. So it's not sort of evenly distributed throughout the night. We have more non-REM sleep at the beginning of the night and more REM sleep towards the end of the night. And as we measure this in the sleep lab, the way we define these stages of sleep is by the electrical pattern or the brainwave pattern that we're seeing from the brain. And we usually put electrodes 
on the brain. And then there are, are very characteristic um, electrical patterns that we see for each stage. They do cross over a little bit, um, but we have like sort of this manual that we use to define each stage. And we usually look at 30 seconds through the whole night and, you know, we would score that and then add all the stages up and create graphs. So there's a different, there's a, you're saying there's different types of electrical activity happening in the brain in each cycle. Yes. So what, what is happening there? I don't know if it's, if it's easy to talk about, like in a little condensed way, Yeah. Um, but can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So when we're awake, we have a faster brainwave pattern. So the frequency of the waves are faster and they have a specific frequency. And so what happens as we see someone start to drift off into stage one, which is really like a transitional stage, is we'll see something called slow rolling eye movements where the eyes move back and forth. So if you ever watched like a partner or something fall asleep or a baby, you'll notice that their eyes are roving behind their eyelids back and forth. And then we'll also see their brainwave patterns slow down. Um, And so that's stage one. And then stage two, um, we'll start to see these very characteristic things called K-complexes and sleep spindles, and they have like a specific appearance on the brainwave pattern. Then when we move into stage three, which is our deepest stage, we'll see very slow, slow waves that have a high amplitude. And we call that delta sleep, and that's our restorative sleep. And then stage REM has the characteristic rapid eye movements. We also have no muscle tone, which is something we see as well. And the REM activity in the brain waves looks very similar to wakefulness. It's very fast, but it has this characteristic loss of muscle tone and then these rapid eye movements that distinguishes it. So interesting. So when we are sleeping, what phase of our sleep is most responsible for like muscle recovery or are they all important for recovering from your workouts? Yeah. I mean, classically we talk about stage three deep sleep and we really define deep, the deepness of sleep based on how much stimulus does it require to wake someone up? So the, it's going to require the loudest sound or the most, you know, touching someone when they're in that deepest stage, which is stage three. And that's the stage that we think, you know, people grow and have muscle recovery it's probably not like cut and dry, like only that stage, but that is the one we associate with, you know, secretion of growth hormone and, um, new recovery from workouts and things of that nature. So it's interesting because I think I have, I've talked to a lot of people who are like, I'm doing all the right things. Like I am exercising. I'm progressively overloading my muscles. I'm eating enough. I'm eating enough protein, but I'm still not seeing the, my muscles grow. So it could be sleep, right? So what would be some symptoms that you're not getting into that deep, deep stage three, um, restful sleep? You know, it's interesting because I don't think that people can tell like a very specific finding like that. But what I think in general is like, people can tell based on how they feel in the morning and how they feel during the day whether they're getting good quality of sleep. So I would look for people to say that, you know, in general, they feel rested in the morning, that they don't feel drowsy. Um, They're not overutilizing caffeine to stay awake. They're not feeling drowsy at work, feeling like they have lapses in attention. They don't experience drowsy driving. And also that their sleep isn't fragmented, you know, so they're not having long awakenings in the middle of the night and things of that nature. 
Speaking of which, speaking of waking up in the middle of the night, is it normal to wake up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Yeah, it definitely is, but not everybody does. So I would say, um, and I think there are some, there are some situations in which it is abnormal. Um, you know, it's, we call that nocturia is the medical term for frequent urination in the night. So if someone's going like three, four times, they're young. I know they don't have an enlarged prostate. They're not pregnant. They don't have bladder infection issues. Then I might be more curious about that. So, um, especially if the person tells me like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not drinking like a lot of water at bedtime or something. I would say one of the most common reasons I see that is because of caffeine use. Um, and then also it can be a symptom of sleep apnea as well. Interesting. I feel like sleep apnea could probably be a whole separate discussion. So maybe we won't get into that too much today. We might have to bring it back for part two. Um, I want to transition and talk about, so we kind of talked about what the normal sleep cycles are, what symptoms are if you aren't getting quality sleep. And I think people know, like if they're in bed, they're going to bed, they're in bed for nine hours, but they're still tired. Like that probably means quality is suffering. I, I assume. Yeah. But let's talk about the relationship. Is there a relationship between weight and sleep? There definitely is a very strong relationship between weight and sleep. And it is complicated. You know, you might have heard of the, you know, leptin and ghrelin. And, you know, when people are overweight, there's this metabolic syndrome that people develop where you become insulin resistant or there's an imbalance of, you know, the normal signals that like from leptin that would say you're full. Um, and so, uh, you know, and this regulation of appetite, there's also, you know, again, not trying to get into much to sleep apnea, but people do develop a, a much, much higher risk for sleep apnea when they, when they are overweight, if their body mass index is over 25 and assuming that's not muscle mass accounting for that. Um, but yeah, there's a very strong relationship. And I, I think it's, it's, it's a general relationship too. in that, like, if you're overweight, you're not as healthy as you could be. Right. And so if you're not as healthy as you could be, then it does, you know, kind of spread down to things like, um, like your sleep and just your general, how you feel. So what's happening then with leptin and ghrelin, what are leptin and ghrelin and how does lack of sleep affect those things? Yeah. So leptin and ghrelin are hormones that, you know, that help the, help the brain regulate feeling full or feeling hungry. Um, and so we, what we think happens is when people are sleep deprived, there's an imbalance of those hormones. And so if people are sleep deprived, they will tend to seek out like sugary foods, high carb foods. They will tend to eat more of those things and just have cravings for those things. Um, and so then it kind of feeds on itself. Then the person might gain more weight and then have more trouble sleeping because, you know, of, of that relationship. And then, um, we, you know, we don't have like a specific intervention for these. I mean, I think there are a lot of pharmaceutical companies are looking into how can we help in these situations, but in general, it's really about, you know, trying to get the person to sleep better so that these hormones are more balanced. Yeah. It's difficult because it's like, if you're in that spiral where, you know, you're not eating properly because you're not sleeping properly and then it cycles on top of itself. So 
what would be kind of your first step? How do you work with someone like that? What's the first thing you kind of tackle? Yeah. So when I meet with someone, I just take a really comprehensive history of one, their medical history and kind of where they are. And then, but also taking a really, you know, detailed look at their sleep wake patterns and seeing, you know, where I think the problems are and then addressing those and trying to really find out, you know, what is at the root of that? Is it a medical problem? Is it a sleep disorder? Is it more just behavioral lifestyle? And what are all the things we can do to kind of, you know, start correcting those and getting them into, um, a better pattern. And a lot of times like the medical issue and the behavioral issue are, you know, they're intertwined, you know, because if someone has like, let's say for example, chronic insomnia or sleep apnea, they learn that they have a really difficult time with sleep. And so then, um, they adapt their behavior, um, to try to cope with it. And then there's this kind of secondary behavioral problem too. Makes sense. It's like, when I know I have, I've got really something really important the next day and I've got to get a lot of sleep. It's almost like that. It gives me more anxiety and I sleep worse. It's like the mental component of things. Like if you know, you're a bad sleeper, it might give you anxiety right before you go to bed to sleep. Yes. I mean, that's the interesting thing about sleep medicine is it's, it's, it's a, you know, you have to really think about people and the person. Yeah, absolutely. Which I, I love. And like, like you said, every aspect of health kind of comes in weaves together and you can't really separate one on the other. So I wasn't really planning on getting into sleep apnea too much and we don't have to get into it too much, but is that kind of one of the more common reasons you sleep, see for disrupted sleep, or are there other really common reasons you see for disrupted sleep? Yeah, I would say sleep apnea, which is, you know, connected with snoring and then insomnia are probably two of the most common reasons people would come to see me. Yeah. Yeah. How do you know the different, how do you know, what are symptoms of sleep apnea? Like, how do you know if you have it? Daytime sleepiness is really common or um, the other really common reason someone would come is because their bed partner notices that they're snoring very loudly. They're, you know, not breathing or the person might say like, I'm waking up frequently in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep. Got it. So if you, if someone listening thinks they might be suffering from sleep apnea and they're having these symptoms, do you recommend seeing a practitioner? Are there some kind of preliminary steps that someone can try before they invest in seeing someone like you? I mean, I think this, the step is to be tested, to have, and we have this home sleep apnea testing that's very accessible. So I think that's really the step to go. And there's, I think there are a lot of tech companies too, like, you know, medical tech companies that are making this really accessible to people online. Yeah. It's more common than, than you think. I mean, I just am hearing about sleep apnea. Of course it's your world. So you've know, known about it for a long time, but yeah. I feel like a lot of, a lot of my friends, as we're getting closer to our thirties are starting to struggle with it as we're, you know, getting older. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read the book breath by Jason Nestor. Have you read that book? I have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of a, it's really interesting for those of you that are interested in this kind of thing. Um, be interested to hear your thoughts, but essentially his whole theory was that, you know, as we've evolved, 
our brains grew faster than like some of the cavities of our sinuses could. And so it is ultimately like constricted our airways and things over time and caused us to breathe out of our mouth. I am curious to hear what you think about, I know that's probably a totally different discussion, but, um, and the taping of the mouth at night, he recommends that. How do you feel about all that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot about that book that really crosses over with sleep medicine. And, you know, he talks in that book about, you know, spending a lot of time at Stanford for treatments. And that's actually where I did my sleep medicine training. And it's kind of, I think it was the first sleep clinic in the country. So it's very, people are very much in tune there with that. And it sounds very unfamiliar, but yeah. And then I think the other thing he mentions is, you know, as we become an agricultural society where like we're not hunting and gathering anymore. We're actually starting to eat all this processed food and we don't chew and we give our babies all this soft food. And so that doesn't kind of facilitate the forward growth of our maxilla and our mandible, our jaw bones. And so we end up with these very, these smaller airways than our ancestors had three to 400 years ago, if we look at their skulls. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot going on there. And, um, I see a lot of kids and young people, and we can sort of tackle that with orthodontics and myofunctional therapy and different interventions to kind of shape. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, it's funny because I, you know, I can look at someone and know like, you know, you have this much chance of sleep apnea just based on looking at your face. What are the facial characteristics that tend to be someone that's more prone to sleep apnea? Yeah. So first of all, if you look at someone's teeth and they have like a big overjet, like their front teeth come way over and their lower jaw is very recessed, then, you know, that's, that's very common. If someone has an anterior open bite where their teeth, when they come together, they, you know, our teeth should come together and the front teeth should slightly overlap the bottom teeth. Um, But if people don't have that connection, they have what's called an open bite, you know, it's often a sign that they were a thumb sucker or used a pacifier. And that really prevents like the normal um, growth and development of the, of the airway. And so that would also be a sign that, you know, the, the airway was negatively influenced by that. We call it non-nutritive sucking. Yeah. That's so fascinating that a lot of this. Gosh, I mean, sleep is so important, but so much of the foundations of our sleep start when we're like little, it seems like, and the, the, um, formation of our facial structures and will ultimately dictate how we're sleeping as adults. And therefore we're recovering how we feel our mental function. It's just so fascinating to me how so much of this goes back to that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I do recommend that book. I, there's a little bit of it that goes a little bit into the sensationalism for me, but, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. you know, James Nestor is a journalist. He's not a, you know, a healthcare practitioner. So he'll, yeah. he will have a different vantage point, you know, and oh. I, I, you know, no criticism towards him. I thought it was a great book. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's really interesting for those of you that want to, um, something, a new read on that note. Um, do you recommend then you kind of mentioned processed food and how processed food is soft. And so we don't use our chewing muscles. Do you, when you're working with someone, do you recommend they a a nutritional component, um, eating less processed foods. Yeah. I mean, I think having a healthy diet can be really helpful. The things that really have evidence 
you know, and, and just not having evidence doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but like eating fiber is really important. We know that people who eat more fiber sleep longer and sleep better. And then also low carb, we also know, um, facilitates better sleep. Um, you know, obviously processed food has its own health consequences. And then, you know, that's kind of like a secondary thing that's going to influence sleep. But I would say like eating low carb and eating fiber are probably the things that are going to be the highest yield for people in terms of, you know, wellness. Yep. Makes total sense. It's like they're all the simple stuff is what works. Like eat more fruits and vegetables and unprocessed foods. It's like that, (laughs) that alone can affect so many different areas of, of your function and how you feel. Um, so this is all so interesting. I have so many questions, but for the sake of time, maybe we'll have to bring you back again. Okay. What would you say? We'll kind of finish with this. What would you say are the most important aspects for sleep hygiene? I hear this term sleep hygiene all the time. I don't know if you use that term, but Mm -hmm. what are kind of the most important aspects for sleep hygiene? Yeah, I think like the most important thing to know about sleep hygiene is it's not a treatment for a sleep problem. It's a foundation for how you want to live your, you know, manage your sleep day in and day out. And it's a preventative way. So it's kind of the, the, you know, the intention was that it's like getting your dental cleaning, right? You're preventing your, you're maintaining the dental health, right? So we're maintaining sleep health with sleep hygiene. So we recommend sleep hygiene for everyone. It's not a treatment for a sleep disorder. And the things that are, you know, really important are, you know, having kind of structure. So I go to bed at the same time. I get up at the same time every day. It's not like three to four hours different on the weekends. I don't stay up later and sleep in on the weekends. Maybe I do once in a while, but it's not the norm. And then the duration of time that I'm in bed. So my sleep window, it's, about equal to how much sleep I need. So I'm not spending 11 hours in bed or 10 hours in bed. I'm spending like eight to nine hours in bed. And then, you know, being really sensible about caffeine use, about alcohol use, um, exercising, um, not, you know, spending lots of time on your device in bed, you know, just kind of keeping bed and having a strong association of sleep with bed. Those are the things that, you know, I would say I would ask people to really make those like a non-negotiable. Yeah. Something that has, I've noticed with my sleep, I've noticed my sleep has really improved since I moved to my new home in California. And one of the things I, is my theory. I don't know if there's any legs behind this. So I want to ask you, I get so much light in my room in the morning. We don't have any treatment. And I feel like I just wake up so much more refreshed now. I don't know if that the light has anything to do with it. Um, but then when I go sleep in a hotel room and they have blackout shades, I'm like so groggy in the morning and I, my alarm like jolts me out of bed. Does that have any legs like getting light in, in the morning, in the morning? Yeah, hundred percent. And I'll tell you, cause I'm licensed in Washington and California. So I see patient, I see people, clients in both States. And I sometimes put a tracker on them where I can look at their light intensity exposure over the day. And people in California are definitely doing much better on that, on that front than really. Yeah. And so I would say like that, I'm, I think that's probably just an astute observation that you made that definitely has legs. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, so not everybody moved to California because it's already as expensive (laughs) as it is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I said that was the last question. I have one more quick question. Sure. I think this will be quick. Okay. 
if someone feels like they're sleep deprived, maybe they have a baby, maybe they have a crazy job, you know, sometimes life is life and you just might not be able to get the full quality sleep that you want. What would be your recommendation for exercise when you're sleep deprived? Should you still kind of push yourself in your workouts or should you kind of back off? Um, what's your recommendation there? I would say it depends a little bit. So let's say it's a person that really feels like they need to like for their mental health. Cause I know a lot of people feel like they might have a little of anxiety or depression, but like, it's totally so much better if they work out, then I would say it might be okay for that person, but I just maybe wouldn't want them to be doing, you know, like a two hour run. I, I would want them to be doing something more, you know, more maybe restorative or more like lower intensity in terms of what they're doing. Um, I also might have that person take a nap, you know, I, and I know we say with sleep hygiene, not to take naps, but that's for somebody who's nor a normal sleeper or someone who has insomnia. If someone's sleep deprived because of an external factor, like a baby naps can be like a magic weapon. And so what I might tell that person to do is, you know, take a nap. And if you still have time and you have energy during the day, then maybe you're going to work out, but maybe it's only going to be for 20 minutes, you know, instead of an hour. And maybe it's going to be more like a vinyasa yoga or a light walk or something like that. It's not necessarily going to be like a hit workout. Yeah. Well, I think that the argument that I've heard from people is like, I'm sleep deprived, but if I do hit, then I'll sleep better. Like if I do an intense workout, then I'll sleep better. Even though I'm sleeping for shorter, it'll be higher quality. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think I have to listen to that person and how, how it's affecting them. And I have to trust that they know it's best. So I don't think there's a black and white answer. Yeah. Um, but if I did, you know, if the person did feel worse or they didn't feel like they had time for it, I wouldn't push them on it. But yeah. I do think, I think, do you think there's other reasons to work out too, like for stress reduction and, you know, totally, totally time, self-care. Yeah. Yeah. Just listen to our, listen to your bodies. Y'all that's, yeah. that's the, yeah, yeah. Probably if it's like, if it's making it worse, if it's making your sleep worse, it's probably, probably need to back off a little bit, but, um, yeah, I agree. I think we work out for more than just results sometimes. Like sometimes it's just to get out of our heads and into our bodies. So love that recommendation. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Dr. Meredith, can you please tell us where we can find you if you're taking patients and how we could work with you, all the things? Yeah. So my practice is called Sound Sleep Guru. It's based out of Washington, but I do see people in California and Alaska. And you can see, find me at Sleep Dr. Mare on Instagram or at my website, soundsleepguru.com. Yay. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. Dr. Meredith, thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember that there are eight free classes in the description. You can click on those and take them as many times as you'd like. And we also have a 14 day free trial of Evlo that's also in the show notes. Have a wonderful day. We will see you all next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.